Tony Robbins has said, if you want to be successful, find someone who has achieved the results you want and copy what they do, and you'll have the same results. Well, that's not an infallible rule, but it is a bit of good wisdom to think about the things that you see in others that you aspire to know yourself, and then to find out how they got to where they are. We can see the effectiveness of this principle all around us, and I think that we today ought to learn more about the power of good examples, the power of following the footsteps of those who are worthy to be followed. Just think about your own life. Think about people that you know that you want to emulate. Somebody that you would like to be like. You see how they live. You see their demeanor, their attitudes. You admire their outlook. I was reminded recently of one of the blessings in my own life when I was a Ph.D. student back in Texas of having the privilege of sitting under a very godly Christian scholar by the name of James Leo Garrett. And as I thought about Dr. Garrett, I was reminded that I was impacted as much by his godly life as I was by any seminar or any lecture that I ever heard from him. Dr. Garrett died last month, and when I received word of his death, I paused to reflect upon him, to to think about what an esteemed Christian theologian he was. And I was reminded that he was a much better Christian man than he was theologian. When I received the news, I took time to think about his impact on me, reflect upon it. And though God called me to be a pastor, and I've not given my life to academic scholarship the way that Dr. Garrett did, I still see ways that he has shaped me, he has influenced me by his example. He was a man who related well to all kinds of people, even people that disagreed with him theologically, of whom I am one. He treated me with respect, and he was willing to listen as well as to speak. As I thought about the virtues in Dr. Garrett's life, there are three characteristics that stood out to me that I just jotted down in my journal. One of them is that He was an honest scholar. He had integrity. He valued truth in every area of life. And he never pretended to know things that he didn't know. Truth mattered to him. He was also a humble man. Uh, He was incredibly smart. But I never got the impression, no matter what room he was in, that, that he thought himself to be better than anybody else in the room. And the third virtue that I've noted in his life as I reflected on it is he had a deep reverence for the word of God. He had a respect for the Bible as the written word of God and he wanted all of his thoughts to be shaped by scripture and he demanded of his students that whatever positions we took that we would have to argue them from the basis of scripture as well. Well, I have a long way to go in cultivating those virtues that I have noted in Dr. Garrett, but I do hold them dear. As I reflected upon that experience of having him as a teacher upon the occasion of his death, one thought occurred to me. It's the thought that Tony Robbins has put down in one of his books. 
If I want to have what Dr. Garrett had, then I need to be willing to do what Dr. Garrett did. I need to pursue honesty, humility, and a deep reverence for God's word. The Apostle Paul uses the same line of argument in Romans chapter 4. In Romans 4, he sets before us the example of that Old Testament patriarch, Abraham. He was a man, Paul says, who was accepted by God. In verse 3 of Romans 4, he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's quoting Genesis 15, 6 there. In other words, he says, Abraham was justified before God by faith. Not by anything that he did, but by believing God. He goes on in the rest of chapter 4 to underscore that point. Repetitively, he makes the claim that it wasn't anything that Abraham did in terms of complying with God's rules that caused God to accept him. It wasn't the fact that he submitted to circumcision because God accepted him before he was circumcised. It wasn't that he got up and left the country that God told him to leave to go to a country he had never seen before. Though he did that, but God justified him before he did that. You can read in Genesis 12 through 17, those chapters of how God dealt with Abraham and the things that he said to Abraham and how he credited Abraham with righteousness because Abraham believed him. Paul makes that point in Romans 4 that Abraham was accepted by God by sheer grace. It was God. God did it. And he received it by faith. Well, Paul makes the point as he brings his illustration of Abraham to a close in the last three verses of Romans 4, that what God did for Abraham, he will do for anyone who does what Abraham did. If you want to be accepted by God the way Abraham was, then trust God the way Abraham did. Romans chapter 4, verses 23 and through 25 is found on page 942 of our Bibles. And that's our text for this morning. It's the closing verses of this chapter. But in order for us to regain some of the flow of Paul's argument, his thinking, I want to begin reading back on the previous page in verse 13. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. So if you'll take a copy of scripture and find that starting point, I'm going to begin there and read down through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is, of, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls to existence the things that do not exist, in hope. He believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old 
or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And then verse 23 that begins our text this morning. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If you want to be counted righteous in God's sight the way that Abraham was, then believe the way that Abraham believed. Take a lesson from Abraham as Paul sets him before us as an example in these verses this morning. The record of Abraham's justification, Paul says, was written for our benefit. The whole reason it's in the Bible, Paul says, is so that we might benefit from it today thousands of years after it occurred. Look again at verse 23 and into verse 24. He says the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake. That's Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. So God's pronouncement of Abraham's righteousness and the recording of that pronouncement wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. Now, it certainly was for Abraham's benefit. God did speak those words to Abraham so that Abraham would know that he was counted righteous in God's sight. God justified Abraham. God came to Abraham and assured him of sin's forgiveness. He assured him that in his courtroom, he was counted as righteous before God's law. Abraham as a man, lived long before the Lord Jesus came into the world to secure this salvation that God promised. And yet, hearing the promise of a seed that would come from him and be the Savior of the world, hearing the promise that from him and the families that would come from him, the whole world, all the nations on the earth would be blessed, Abraham trusted God. And through such faith, came to be declared righteous. But it wasn't just for Abraham's sake, as Paul makes plain. It was for our sake too, to those who would live after the time of Abraham, for the people in Paul's day that he's writing the letter to, and the people after Paul's day, us, who have this letter recorded to us as Holy Scripture. Paul knew what some Christians today seem to have forgotten, and that is that the Old Testament is a Christian book. It's our book. These are not exclusively the Jewish scriptures. Brothers and sisters, the Old Testament was written for us. Paul makes this point plain in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he labors the point that what happened with the Israelites wandering in the wilderness was recorded so that we might learn lessons from that. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul says almost the same thing in this letter to the church at Rome. In Romans chapter 15 verse 4 he writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Write it down. 
The Old Testament is a Christian book. Those 39 books of the Old Testament were the Bible that Jesus used. That was the Bible of the apostles. And the 27 books that we have in the New Testament that come from the apostles were added to those 39 to comprise the Holy Word of God. And so don't ever think that our faith, that Christianity is dependent only on the last part of the Bible. The whole Bible belongs to us as the sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We must not miss this point as we see Paul teaching us that Abraham was justified by God through faith. See, Abraham was not unique. He wasn't even unusual. Rather, Abraham was typical of the kind of person that God forgives. And if you want to be forgiven by God, look at Abraham as Paul sets him before us in Romans 4 and follow in his footsteps. When God spoke to Abraham in the Old Testament, the message that was communicated to him that Abraham received was the gospel. It was the message of Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners. Now, obviously, it wasn't communicated to Abraham in the same detail or with the same clarity that you and I have it given to us in the New Testament. But indeed, it was the same message, the good news of salvation from God by grace that's to be received only through faith. This is why Jesus could say what he did in John chapter 8. When the Jewish leaders were saying, we have Abraham as our father. Who are you to talk to us this way? Jesus said, no, if Abraham were really your father, if you were really Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, Jesus said. And I'm a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You want to be a child of Abraham, do what Abraham did. You want to be accepted by God the way Abraham was? Then trust God the way that Abraham did. This is why Paul writes what he does in Galatians chapter 3. Listen to this. Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Why? Because Abraham is the man of faith. You're going to be a child of Abraham? Have faith like Abraham did. He goes on. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify all the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying... In you shall all the nations be blessed. The gospel was preached to Abraham. That's what Paul writes in Galatians. And so when Abraham believed God, he's believing the gospel. In its minutia, in its infancy, in its first dawning revelation that we now have in full growth and great clarity in the New Testament, Abraham heard what God said, received that message as good news that there is a Savior who will come and save him from his sins. And he took God at his word. And Paul says that faith, that faith is what God looked upon. And because of that faith, granted righteousness, forgiveness, justification to Abraham. If you want to be counted righteous before God like Abraham was, then believe God the way Abraham did. You see, Abraham looked forward. He heard the promise from God. 
of salvation that would come through Messiah. And he trusted God looking forward to that salvation being accomplished. Today, we see the promise fulfilled in what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And we hear that. It's given to us in the scripture that what God promised Abraham has now happened Jesus came, he lived a life of perfect obedience to God's commandments. He laid down his life as if he were a sinner, though he never sinned, but he did it so that sinners like you and me might have our sins punished in him. And we see the fulfillment of the promise. And just as Abraham had to believe the promise, so we must believe the fulfillment of the promise. He looked forward, we look back. But it's the same faith, in the same message, in the same gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. You want to be accepted by God? Believe that. Take God at His word. Trust God. Give yourself over to that truth that is revealed. And bow before Jesus Christ as your Lord. Paul makes that point, but he makes it even more explicitly in the latter part of verse 24. Do you see that? He says, just like Abraham was counted righteous, we also will be counted righteous through faith. He said, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Abraham's faith resulted in his being credited with righteousness from God. Paul repeatedly makes that point throughout this whole chapter. God forgave Abraham of all of his sin. He declared that Abraham was sinless, righteous in his sight. Why? Because Abraham was so good? No. Read the life of Abraham. Because Abraham did everything just right? No. Not at all. Why? Because Abraham took God at his word and he received the Messiah. He received the Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ. And he trusted him and God credited Christ's righteousness to him. God did this simply because Abraham believed. And Paul is saying, in the same way, God will do for you what he did for Abraham if you will believe like Abraham believed. Take God at his word. Accept the truth that's given to us in Scripture that there is a Savior for sinners and that he saves all who turn from their sin and trust in him. In verse 18, we see something of the way that Abraham is an example for us to follow. It says that Abraham trusted in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. When God spoke to Abraham and revealed to him what he was going to do, the promise of a Savior Abraham believed God, Paul says, this God who gives life to the dead. Who calls into existence things that don't exist. Well, brothers and sisters, don't you see that today we have much clearer revelation of that truth about God than Abraham did. It's come to us in a much more forceful way in the New Testament because we know he's not only the God who raises the dead, he's the God who has raised the dead never to die again. Jesus Christ has come back from the dead through the power of God. And he lives today. And because he lives, we are called upon to trust him, to stake our lives upon him, and to depend upon the God who did that in order that 
people like you and me might have our sins forgiven and be granted life everlasting. If we want what Abraham had, we must trust the way Abraham trusted in the God who raises the dead. You notice how Paul puts it here, though. It's different than what we normally have in the New Testament. Normally, Jesus himself is set before us as the object of our faith. And I've said that two or three times already in this message, that you must trust Jesus Christ as Lord. But that's not exactly the way the Apostle Paul puts it in our text. He says here that if you want to be justified the way Abraham was justified, then you must believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Again, that's exactly what Abraham did, as verse 18 that I mentioned earlier describes for us. It's what was going on in Abraham's mind in that passage that Don read to us from Genesis chapter 22. Can you imagine that? Have you you ever tried to put yourself in Abraham's shoes? Here's the son that God promised you would have. Through him, through whom would come the, the seed that would bless the nations of the earth throughout all history. And now he's told you to take that son and offer him up as a sacrifice to put him to death. I mean, what must have been going on in Abraham's mind? We get hints of it in Genesis 22 when he tells his servants, you wait here, we'll return. So there's already that sense that Abraham, not knowing everything that was going to happen, knew that he could trust God. And when his son asked him, and Isaac said, where's the lamb? He said, God will provide the lamb. I don't have all the answers, but I'm trusting God. But we don't even have to speculate what was in Abraham's mind because we are told in Hebrews 11 exactly what was going on in Abraham's mind as he took his son up on that mountain to sacrifice him. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, that's Genesis 22, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. He had the knife in his hand. Of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. What, what a test. This son that you're about to kill is the one that I promise is going to be through whom all the blessings of the nations will come. Can you figure that out? Can you explain that? How do you explain that? Abraham didn't have an answer. What was going on in his mind? The author tells us in verse 19 of Hebrews 11. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He's God. He makes promises. He keeps promises. What he says he will do. And Abraham took God at his word. Through you, through your son, will come all the blessings that will bring salvation to the world. And here, his son is about to be sacrificed. And Abraham doesn't say, God, if I do this, then your promises will fail. If I do this, it's not going to work out. I can't bring myself to keep trusting you. No, Abraham says, I don't understand what's going on here. You can raise the dead. And so I put all my hope, all my trust in you. That's what God calls upon us to do, to trust him in this way, to depend upon him, to take him at his word. To believe he's the God who raises the dead. He has raised Jesus Christ literally from the tomb. Never to die again. Paul also demonstrates here 
by this language of trusting the God who raises the dead. He demonstrates the oneness of our triune God. A Christian is not somebody who believes in Jesus separated from God. And he's not just somebody who has confidence in God. Oh, I believe in God. I believe in God. You hear that a lot today. But a Christian is somebody who believes in the true God. The God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. A Christian is somebody who doesn't just believe in Jesus, but believes in the Jesus who is God in flesh. The Jesus Christ who is the incarnate God. The one who is God-man. It's that Jesus that we believe in. And so to trust in Jesus Christ is to trust in the God who raised him from the dead. To be justified through faith is to be made right with this God. The God who created us. The God who sent his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world. The God who in the person of his son became a real man. The God who in Jesus Christ submitted himself to the death of the cross and was raised from the dead. And he did this so that all who trust him, all who take him at his word, all who bow to him might be declared righteous. So the only way to be forgiven the way Abraham was, the only way to be justified the way that he was, is following in his footsteps, taking God at his word, and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. Believing him. Submitting yourself to them, to him. So, I want to pause and just ask a question. Have you trusted this God who raises the dead, who came to us in the person of Jesus Christ? Are you trusting him now? Like Abraham, are you living your life on the basis of what God has done for sinners in Christ? Is that your hope? Is that where you're placing all of your confidence as you anticipate the day when you'll stand before God? What's going to be your argument on that day? Oh, I did the best I could. You know, I had a hard life. Anything like that you need to throw away. And and your confidence needs to be, God, you're the God of Jesus Christ. You're the God who gave up your only son. You're the God who came into the world in the person of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus lived the life that you require of me. And Jesus died the death my sins deserve. And I'm hoping in him. I'm trusted in him. And if you take God at his word in that way, you trust the Lord Jesus, you can be sure. God counts you righteous for Jesus' sake. In the exact same way that he looked at Abraham's faith and counted righteousness to him. So the record of Abraham's being declared righteous was written for our benefit. And we also, like him, will be counted righteous through faith. In verse 25, Paul summarizes how this works. By stating that our justification has been once for all secured by the Lord Jesus. You see that? Jesus Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Two phrases that describe two things that were done to Jesus for us. He was delivered up. He was raised. And this was for our trespasses and for our justification. That little word for means on account of. It means simply because of. And it can point either forwards or backwards. 
in the first phrase, delivered up for our trespasses, it points backwards because it was on account of our trespasses. It was because of sin that came into this world that Jesus was delivered up to be the atoning sacrifice for sin. It looks backwards. Our sins necessitated his being delivered up. The second phrase, however, points forward. He was raised for our justification. It means that Jesus was raised in order to guarantee that in God's sight, we who are in Christ will indeed be regarded as righteous. That those of us who put our hope in Christ will be justified because of his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead was like God putting his stamp of approval on everything that Jesus had accomplished and demonstrating that, yes, it's enough. He's the Savior that sinners need. Listen to the way that William Hendrickson explains this point. He says, in other words, Christ's resurrection had as its purpose to bring to light the fact that all those who acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and Savior have entered into a state of righteousness in the eyes of God. He was raised so that we can be guaranteed eternal acceptance with God. We need to note well the way Paul writes both of these phrases. Do you see how he words it? He words it in the passive voice. You catch that? He was delivered. He was raised up. He doesn't say Jesus delivered himself. He doesn't say Jesus raised himself up. Rather, he was delivered up and he was raised. In other words, these are things that were done to Jesus. And so the question immediately comes to mind, by whom? I mean, who did it? Who acted on Jesus in this way? What does Paul have in mind here? Have you ever stopped to ask the question, who killed Jesus? And that's what Paul's talking about in the first phrase. He was delivered up. He's talking about his crucifixion. Who did that? Who did that? There's a lot of ways to think about it. Judas betrayed him, right? So in one sense, you could say, well, Judas delivered him up. He's the one that turned him over to the Jewish officials. Well, what did the Jewish officials do? Well, they held a mock trial, and then they delivered him up to the Roman officials and demanded that he be put to death. So you could say, well, the Jewish leaders did it. They killed him. Well, what did Pilate do? Pilate tried to wash his hands of the whole thing, but he, he couldn't do it. He was too afraid of the crowds of the Jews that were claiming, calling for Jesus' crucifixion. So Pilate delivered him over to the Roman soldiers. So in one sense, you could say Pilate killed him. Well, it was the Roman soldiers that, that actually took the nails and drove them through his hands and his feet. And they're the ones that hoisted him up on that cross, putting it into the ground. So you could say, well, the Roman soldiers did it. And you could say any one of those things or all of those things, and you wouldn't be completely wrong but neither would you be right because Paul had none of those actors in mind when he wrote verse 25 what Paul had in mind is exactly what he had in mind when he wrote verse 25 of chapter 3 look at that verse Paul says there God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received 
by faith. God did it. God's the one who delivered him up. God's the one who brought about the execution of his son on the cross. There's no mistaking this in the minds of Jesus' apostles. That in and through all of those secondary causes, Pilate, the soldiers, Judas, everybody else, it was God who was the one that was working in the death of Jesus Christ. Peter at Pentecost said to the Jews gathered around him in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, This Jesus, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They did it. It was sin for them to do it. But they did it according to the determined plan of God. (laughs) Explain that. I don't know how to explain it. Except to recognize that God was not absent in the death of Jesus. He was the master of ceremonies. He was the one delivering up his son to be an atonement for sin. After Pentecost... Disciples in Acts chapter 4 recorded as having gathered together to pray because they were being persecuted for their preaching this crucified, risen Jesus Christ. And in Acts 4, 27 and 28, we hear them pray with these words. They say to God, truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate. They're guilty. Along with the Gentiles, they're guilty. And the peoples of Israel, they're guilty. But they were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. He was delivered up. By whom? By God. God was every bit as involved in the delivering up of Jesus on the death of the cross as he was in the resurrection of Jesus from the tomb. God did it. And he did it all for us. For everyone who will trust Jesus Christ as Lord. These two aspects of Jesus' work, which we will focus on a little more tonight as we think about his work as our mediator, his death and his resurrection, these two aspects should never be separated from one another. When we think of Jesus crucified, we need to think of him as crucified and risen. When we think of Jesus as risen, we need to remember he is the crucified, risen Savior. In chapter 5, verse 18, Paul makes sure that we don't separate the person and work of Jesus or any of the aspects of his work by referring to all that Jesus did for us as being one act. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, that's Adam's sin. So one act of righteousness, that's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. If you want to be counted righteous in God's sight the way Abraham was, then believe God the way Abraham did. Take God at His word. Bow to the God who raises the dead. Bow to Jesus Christ and stake your life on this. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when you might have intuitions within you thinking, this is not going to go well if I offer up my only son as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Take God at his word. Remember that he can raise the dead. 
I know there are unbelievers here this morning. I know. And I'm glad you're here. I hope you'll always come. But I hope you know we want you to join us in becoming believers. We want you to know the forgiveness of sins. We want you to be able to go to bed tonight confident that God looks upon you not holding your sin against you anymore, but He looks upon you and just like He did for Abraham, He counts you righteous. Friend, that's available to you. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's why Jesus Christ came. And in behalf of Christ, I plead with you today to turn from your sin and trust Jesus. Just simply say, God, I take you at your word. I don't understand all of it. And sometimes it doesn't seem to make sense. But I believe you and receive Christ Jesus as your salvation. God will count you righteous the way he counted Abraham righteous. As you trust in this God of Jesus Christ the way Abraham did. Brothers and sisters, do you see how God's way of justifying sinners gives us Reasons to be full of hope and comfort and assurance. Your standing before God's not dependent upon your performance. God didn't forgive you because you did things right. God doesn't love you because you're so lovable. God forgives you. He's for you. He loves you because of His Son, the Lord Jesus, who came into the world and shed His blood for you. And so just like you did nothing to get yourself into a right relationship with God, God will make sure that you stay in that right relationship with Him on the basis of what Jesus, His Son, has done for you. So take heart and be encouraged and be full of hope. And and when it seems too good to be true, believe what God says regardless of how it lands upon you and your sense of what is proper Or even possible. Listen to this testimony of John Bunyan. John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Wonderful Puritan. 13 years in prison because he refused to quit preaching the gospel. He tells us about his own story. Grappling with this. In his book Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Listen to what he writes. One day as I was passing into the field. This sentence fell upon my soul. Here's the sentence. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where's your righteousness? For it's always right before him. I saw that it's not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness is Christ. Now my chains fell off indeed. My temptations fled away. I lived sweetly at peace with God. Now I could look for myself to him and could reckon that all my character was like the coins a rich man carries in his pocket when all his gold is safe in a trunk at home. Oh, I saw that my gold was indeed in a trunk at home. In Christ my Lord, now Christ was all. My righteousness, my sanctification... My redemption. Brothers and sisters, don't you want to live like that? Don't you want to have that hope, that assurance, that confidence? You can. It's available for you. It's available in Christ.
Believe that God looks upon you and sees you as you trust in His provision of Jesus Christ and that He credits you with righteousness for Christ's sake. Your righteousness is spotless before God. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. Because your righteousness is Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your way of salvation. We thank you for justifying sinners as we turn from sin and trust Christ. God, I pray that you would come by your spirit and communicate that to us more deeply than we've ever known it before. Some here today have walked with you for decades, and I pray that you would make this as sweet as the first moment we ever received Christ into our lives. There are others here today, and they've never, they've never come to know the forgiveness of sins that's in Jesus. I ask you to open their eyes, to show them Christ. Show them your goodness and your grace. Shower your love upon them, O God. And awaken them that they might turn from sin and trust Jesus and live for him. Help us to be a people in this church who glory in the provisions that you have made for us in your son. May Christ be everything for us. For we pray in his name. Amen.